news. It's something Lisa and I like to do. It's just kind of catch up on the events that are taking place around the world. And so we turned on the evening news, and uh, there before us was the Democratic National Convention, which has been running on every channel this week, uh, Monday through uh, last night. And there was our president, Bill Clinton, who was accepting the nomination for uh, the Democratic Party to run again for president uh, in this election year, November of 1996. As we listened to his speech and his wonderful words, I was reminded of an article that I read in Newsweek just this last week. And some creative journalist had gone back to the book that Bill Clinton had authored prior to the 1992 presidential election. And he laid out in that book all of his campaign promises, all the things that he was saying he would attempt to accomplish if he was elected president of the United States. And this journalist went through. He knew that there were 175 no less than 175 promises that our president had made to us uh, in that book. And to his credit, the journalist acknowledged that Bill Clinton had in some form or manner accomplished two-thirds of those promises. But as you read through that, you realize very quickly that that one-third, a third of 175, represented a significant amount of promises that had not been realized. And of course, that's the nature of politics. And as I thought about that article, I thought a little bit just about the nature of promises. And I realized that in our sinful world, we rarely ever have a perfect experience with promises that are made to us. Uh, sometimes someone will hit the two-thirds percentage uh, rate and come through for us. But I think of friends I've had. I think of even my parents on occasion. Uh, I think of different opportunities uh, positions of employment that I've had, and it always affords an opportunity for someone to not quite follow through on maybe a promise or an intention that they had made. And simply, that's a characteristic of a fallen world. We do not know perfection, and we will not until Christ returns. But I know one thing to be very true. There is one individual, one person in each of our lives who never fails with regard to the promises that he makes us, and that's our Heavenly Father, God the Creator. Is that not true? He always follows through. He never fails us. It's consistent with his character. And I was struck by a few of the comments that were made by some prominent uh, Christian thinkers. Listen as I read a few of these comments and see how they complement that reality that I just described. J. Oswald Sanders makes this note. The validity and dependability of a promise rest on the character and resources of the one who makes it. Just as the validity of a bank check depends on the uh, probity and bank balance of the one who signs it, the holy character and faithfulness of God make his promises credible. He who promised is faithful, testified the writer of the letter to Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 23. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, said the kneeling Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 56. It has everything to do with the character of the individual making the promise. Spurgeon had this to say with regard to the promises that we find from our God. Every promise of Scripture is a writing of God, which may be pleaded before him with this reasonable request. Do as thou hast said. The Creator will not cheat the creature who depends upon his truth, and far more the Heavenly Father will not break his word to his own child. John Bunyan, great novelist and author, wrote this. 
talking about his own personal experiences with promises, Satan would labor to pull the promise from me, telling me that Christ did not mean it applied to me. He pulled and I pulled, but God be praised, I got the better of him. And again, J. Oswald Sanders says this, With God, promise and performance are inseparable. They go hand in hand. For as many as may be the promises of God, 2 Corinthians 1.20, in Him they are yes. Wherefore also by Him is our amen to the glory of God through us. And finally, Gene War, in a book entitled The Godly Man, makes this observation. There's a song that we sing in our churches entitled Standing on the Promises of Christ My King. But how many promises do you know to stand on? And are you well enough acquainted with the one who made these promises to believe them and rest on them? The only way we can know and claim his promises and trust and obey him is to know his word. The reality, my friends, is this. God never fails. And that which he indicates to us is consistent with his character. He will always follow through on it in a way that we may never experience in in the context of our human relationships. I think of the Old Testament, and I think of individuals whose promises were made to them. Think of Noah and the flood. The man spent over 100 years building an ark, but he knew this to be true. What God promised, he would deliver. The flood came. The earth, in a sense, was destroyed, as it was known, but God came through on his promise. He's given the gift of the rainbow uh, to seal that, that that would not happen again. Abraham, unbelievable. In his old age, he was promised that he would be the father of a nation that you cannot count. And he says, there is no way I can father a child at my age. And yet what happened? He fathered more than one child, but specifically his son Isaac. And he fathered the nation of Israel. And that extended on uh, to other countries and peoples as well. What about Joseph? Think of the dream that he had, a dream from God, that his brothers would bow down to him. How was that realized? Joseph? This Israelite was raised to the position of second in command in the land of Egypt, the leading country of the world at that time. And yes, there was a famine in his brother's homeland. And his brothers, at the end of his life, came and bowed their knee to him. Amazing to imagine at his youthful state that that could ever be realized, but God is faithful to his promises. Moses in the burning bush was told by God that he would be used to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And think of just one incident, standing on the banks of the Red Sea. And as the waters parted, you got to know in Moses' mind, he remembered that conversation with the Lord. And God delivered his people. God is always faithful. And then one of my favorite heroes in the Old Testament, Joshua, told that he would take the helm and lead the nation of Israel into the Promised Land. He says, don't worry, I will give you victory over the kings and nations that occupy that land And as they traveled over the Jordan and attacked the first city, the city of Jericho, God said, wait a second, let's do it my way. March around seven times and don't say a lot. And at the end, make a lot of noise, and guess what? I'll take care of the victory. The walls fell down. God was faithful to his promises. What I want to say to you is God will be faithful to the promises that he's made to you. I believe I'm looking at an audience this morning who's very concerned about spending a life that will count for something, a life that will be fulfilled and prosperous. You've come to be trained, to be equipped, to go out and to make your mark on this world, this generation. And I believe that within your heart there's a little bit of a question mark, wondering what that's going to be like for you. 
I believe God's word speaks specifically to that concern in your heart. And to that matter, I want to address my comments uh, and our study this morning. But I need to make one more thought clear. When we think of those individuals in the Old Testament, there was one thing that was required for the promises to be fulfilled. The issue was faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 states it this way. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What is meant by Hebrews 11, verse 1? And we understand the following verses go through the life of many of these individuals who had promises made to them. The characteristic of their lives was the issue of faith. The issue of faith, putting their confidence in God. Really the meaning of this verse And the issue of faith is that you have as much confidence in the thing that is promised as though you had already seen it accomplished. Or in other words, think of the old adage that says seeing is believing. Isn't that much more characteristic of how we live? When I see it, I'll believe it, is what we say. I think for the believer it should be restated, including the word faith. Faith is believing as though you have already seen it. That's the confidence that you have in God that he will fulfill his promises. And the precious promise that I want to look at this morning that is made to us as believers is given to us in Psalm chapter 1. And we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at the people in the passage. We're going to look at the pictures in the passage. And then we're going to look at the perspective. Turn there with me to Psalm chapter 1 and listen as I read. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Verse 4, not so the wicked, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's just jump right into this passage, and I believe it's going to be a perfect complement to what our president has shared with us this week already. The first person that we're going to look at here in this passage is the cursed man, beginning in verse 1. Blessed is the man who does not. The negative there implies that there's a contrast being made. In essence, the one who lives this kind of life is not the blessed individual, but actually the one who is cursed. And so we'll look at what the cursed individual appears like. The cursed individual walks in the counsel of the wicked. What does that mean? What does that mean in that passage? Walking in the counsel of the wicked. Basically, this individual listens to the ungodly's advice and their philosophies and allows them to shape his worldview. It could be said that he is privately influenced by the ungodly's thinking. That's the heart of what's being stated there. This person is influenced by things that are not Christ-like. But then we see going on, there's movement here. The cursed individual stands in the way of sinners. What's meant by that passage? Real simply there they have begun to commit acts of ungodliness. They have moved from private influence to public association. These things are beginning to characterize them. It's not just empty words, but now it begins to be reflected in their behavior. 
and yet we're not done with this individual. The cursed individual then sits in the seat of mockers. Your Bible might read scoffers. One commentator wrote this, the scoffers characterized as being frivolous, disregarding the Almighty, making sport of all things. In actuality, the worst case and class of being wicked. And imagine the arrogance that goes into this individual's life, that they will, in essence, raise their fist at God and say, no, I do not accept your truth. I do not recognize you. I will substitute something for that, and that is earthly wisdom and unrighteousness. In essence, this person has become an idolater because we understand anyone who removes God from the throne has made a substitute of idolatry and I think has lost in the bargain. But as important as the activities that are mentioned there, which I think are critical, I want to step back for a moment and make an observation. In looking at the Hebrew, the perfect tense is used in the verbs here. And what is communicated is that there is a long, continued, and still enduring characteristic of this person's life. What we understand here is the cursed individual is the one who has reasoned and then acted by committing themselves to a lifelong pattern of rebellion against God. I think that's an apt description of the unbeliever. What we see here really is a continuation or postures of progressive resolution. I mentioned I think it's a movement towards idolatry. Digression is represented by physical action. Let me help you out. Give you a little visual lesson here. Visual aid. Look at the movement represented in the passage. Okay, You have the person who is walking and then what? Standing and then sitting. We see movement towards resolution. The person who we find characterized by sitting in the seat of scoffers is one who has made up their mind that they will not follow God. And it's very dangerous. In James chapter 1, uh, verses 13 through 15, I invite you to look there because we see a similar thought with regard to the progression of sin. I think it has very practical applications in our own lives. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Listen as I read. When tempted... No one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The formula for a sinful life is this. Temptation leads to lust, leads to sin, and leads to death. The same progression and movement. I have to ask you, have you matured enough in your own walk with the Lord that you can begin to recognize points of temptation and begin to repent at that point and to say, no, I will not go down that path? Or are you an individual who constantly finds himself saying, why did I do that? Why did I do that? My friends, you don't have to live that kind of life. What, we're, what we learn from Scripture is that sin doesn't necessarily just sneak up on us and we just commit ourselves to it. There's a long pattern and process in our lives. And I would invite you to think back. What are the decisions that led you up to being in a position where you couldn't say no? I'd say it's a lot easier to say no back here outside of the circumstance than in the midst of it. Take it for what it's worth. There's a much longer sermon 
uh, in the book of James that I'd love to get into sometime. But I wanted to mention it to you because I think it echoes the thought that we find in Psalm chapter 1. But let's talk a little bit about the blessed man. The man who is considered happy or fulfilled in a sense. What do we find him? We pick up in verse 2 of Psalm chapter 1. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Let me break it down for you. Beginning with, actually in the Hebrew you would understand it's literally, but if his delight is in the law of the Lord. It's conditional. As you fall in love with the word of God, as our president has taught us this week, and become a doer of it, your life will be reflected, as we'll see here in a few moments. The blessed man, number one, delights in the law of the Lord. Simply the law means here the commands of God. Or if you will, God's counsel for godly living. In sharp contrast to what? The ungodly's counsel. My friends, we find in our Bible something much richer, much more profitable than the ungodly counsel that surrounds us in our society and our world. And a lover of his word, the one who delights in it, will see tremendous reward and prosperity in their life. The word delight itself simply means inclined, finding pleasure or enjoyment in that object. C.S. Lewis makes this observation. He says, part of what an ancient Jew meant when he said he delighted in the law was very like what one of us would mean if he said that somebody loved history or physics or archaeology or English or put your own major or field of study into it. You have committed your life to the pursuit of understanding that field, that discipline. You want to see your future career represented in that field. You're so sold on it that you have come here to spend quite a bit of money to earn a degree in that area and become an expert in it. And the point is this, do we delight in the same way in God's Word? Do we want to become experts in the field of holy living? A.W. Tozer confronts us with that thought. He says this, True spirituality manifests itself in certain dominant desires. These are ever-present, deep-settled wants, sufficiently powerful to motivate and control the life. A Christian is spiritual when he sees everything from God's viewpoint. The ability to weigh all things in the divine scale and place the same value upon them as God does is the mark of a spirit-filled life. I think it's a very helpful comment. The second thing, and we'll spend a little more time on this, the first was the attitude of delight. The second really is the action. The one who delights in God's word meditates day and night. The Hebrew word there means uh, muttering or restating. And you've seen people on the street who keep talking to themselves. In a sense, that's a visual picture of what's being done here. I think a more appropriate illustration uh, is one that you may have heard several times from many pastors. It's definitely not original to me. But it's the picture of the cow that we find in the field. Some of you may be nodding, saying, I've heard this before. Well, let me repeat it, because I think it will help us. There's an interesting way that the cow was designed. It has seven stomach chambers. You think, why? What's the point? Well, God had a design when he made the cow. The design is this. The cow goes out there and eats a full meal of grass or hay or whatever's in the field, swallows that, and the unpleasant word regurgitates it, coughs it back up into its mouth and chews on it and continues to break down the food to get the nutrients out of it, swallows it again, regurgitates it. We call it chewing its cud. That's what's meant by that term. 
A cow is a perfect picture of what the believer should look like. We take in God's word and we bring it back up. We restate it. We mutter it. We think about it. We contemplate it. And we break it down to get the nutrients out of it. We swallow it. Let those nutrients go to the part of our body, in a sense, that need the nutrition. The areas of our life that need that passage applied to it. And we bring it up again. And we think on it. And we apply it. We bring it up. Think on it. And apply it. If I were to give you a few definitions of meditation, you don't have to write these down, but just listen. One suggested that meditation is reviewing and breaking down truth for personal application. That's real simple. You can take that and work with it. Reviewing and breaking down truth for personal application. I would suggest this uh, as a definition. Meditation is prayerful reflection on the Word of God with a view to understand and apply it. And I like what one author wrote. He said, meditation is discourse within the soul. Think about that. At a soul level, you're communing with the truth of God. Thinking very deeply about it and its implications. Well, when do you meditate? How do you do this? The psalmist tells us you do it day and night. What does he mean by that? Let me help you out. The Hebrew there indicates that it is a kind of time. Meaning that it's daytime and nighttime. Not necessarily two points in time, but 24 hours a day. The Jews understood that night for them in their culture was from 6 o'clock in the evening till 6 o'clock in the morning. So when you said nighttime, it was any period in that 12 hour between 6 and 6, or the previous 12 hours between 6 and 6. What we understand from this is to be the continual practice of our life, that we live and we feed daily, moment by moment, on the truth of God's Word. Interesting passage says almost the same exact words. We find it in Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. Don't turn there, but listen as I read. Actually, I'll back up to verse 6. Be strong and courageous. He's talking to Joshua, ready to take the reins of leading the nation of Israel. Because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to your forefathers to give them. Verse 7. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you be strong and courageous? Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. What a great promise made to Joshua. Think of the amazing task that he has. I'd be a little nervous if I was Joshua. I'm going to pick up where Moses left off. People loved Moses. I'm going to take them and lead them into the promised land. I don't think so. And God probably spoke to the fear of his own heart, just like he might speak to your own fear about your own future. And he says, be strong and courageous. And the process of being strong and courageous is fed by the activity of meditation. Feeding your soul with the truth of God. Well, let's talk a little bit about the picture. We talked about the two people. We're going to talk about the two pictures that are presented here. First of all, we talk about the blessed man. Psalm chapter 1, let's look at it. Verse 3, he's like a tree planted by streams of water which yield its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does prospers. Well, let's break that down just a little bit. First of all, imagine the grandest tree that as a child you may have climbed. What's your favorite tree that you climbed? Maybe fell out of. It was so big and so high. 
But imagine a very large, healthy tree. Picture that in your mind, okay? Because this is a very visual illustration in Scripture. And it says that this tree is actually planted by streams of water. That term there is actually a double plural in the original and simply alludes to the fact that there is an abundance of water. And we're comparing the person who's meditating day and night just to this tree. You're like a tree planted by the banks of a never-ending source of nutrition and, and nutrients found in the life of that water. It's a great picture. I love it. Second thing we find here is that this tree yields its fruit in season. John 15 talks about abiding in Christ and will bear fruit. We understand that the, the believer themselves will manifest the fruit of Christ in their own life. What's being said here? I believe what's being stated is that there are different kinds of trees. Some of you may be a pear tree. Some of you may be a cherry tree. Some of you may be an, an elm or an oak. We understand in the New Testament that God has created all of us individually, uniquely. And the simple truth that's laid out in this passage is the kind of fruit that you were designed to bear, you will do it. And you will bear much of it, and you'll bear it in the season that you were intended to bear it. Isn't it true that fruit trees bear their fruit in different seasons? And wouldn't it be foolish for a cherry tree to try to produce cherries when a pear tree is trying to produce pears? We're confronted here with with the sinful temptation really to compare ourselves to one another. Your only responsibility is to be who God made you to be. As you feed on his word and you establish that nutrition in your own healthy walk with him, rest in him. You will bear the fruit that you were intended to bear. But imagine this tree laden with fruit. It's a beautiful picture that we see. What do we know about this tree also? Its leaf does not wither. What's the point in that little note there, that phrase? If, if the leaves are withering, isn't it true that they're dying? An indication of movement towards death or a lack of life is the, is the leaf just drying up and withering and crumpling. We've all run in fields and trampled leaves that have fallen from a tree underneath our feet. And we hear that crushing sound. That's the sound of death. But the person who places themselves deeply with roots deep into the ground, absorbing the nutrients, will not ever have to face the loss of leaves or the beginning of the decaying process. They will have health and life. And then comes the clincher right here. Point for whatever they do will prosper. Whatever the godly individual will do will prosper. Well, I have to put a caution here. You have to ask yourself a question. What kind of things does a godly person do? They do godly things. That's what prospers. We do not find in Psalm chapter 1 a license for us to go out and to consume upon ourselves those selfish ambitions and then stand back and say, God, make me prosper. What God prospers allows to prosper are those things that are according to His will and reflect His character. And really, there is no conflict when the person really attempts to be like Christ. Let me review that real quickly, what the picture looks like. It's planted. It's roots deep into the ground. Secure, stable is the picture. It's provided for. The nutrition has been given to us, represented in the water. 
on its banks. It's productive. It bears the fruit that it was intended to bear. It's permanent. It does not begin to decay. It will last forever. And then it is prosperous. It is successful. You want to talk about a great promise. My friends, we find it right here in Psalm chapter 1. And just like our president has been telling us this week, if you build your life on the Word and become doers of it, you will taste of the fulfillment and the prosperity that I believe you came to the Master's College to find and prepare for. What's the option? I have to be frank with you. The comparison and contrast continues in this passage. Read on with me. It's the cursed man. What does this person look like? real simple picture is given in contrast to the tree. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. What's the picture there? Let me help you out. In Jewish culture, what they used to do at the time of harvest is they would take their crop of grain and they would find an elevated plateau or a high area that was flat where the winds could blow openly. And they would take their threshing tools and they would toss the grain up into the air. And as the grain went into the air, the outer part of the kernel, the chaff, the useless part, if you will, was carried away with the wind. The contrast is simply this. The stability of the godly person with the instability of the ungodly. There is no foundation. There is no depth to their life. They are tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Let's look at the cursed man first of all. Verse 5. The wicked man will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Simply stated, this individual will not be counted as a part of the redeemed when the time for eternal punishment is awarded. Looking towards the future. James chapter 1, talking about death. These people will taste of eternal death, not eternal life. And it's promised here in this passage. They will not stand. They will not make it in that moment before the judgment throne. But yes, by implication here, we understand that the blessed individual will be. They will be standing there in the congregation of the righteous, the assembly of the righteous. And they will be the ones who receive the opportunity to experience and to taste of eternal life. Really ultimate prosperity. Something that we all long and hope for. I do, and I believe you do as well. This is the individual who has had the blood of Christ atone for their sin. And you see this sharp contrast here. I want to begin to wrap up my thoughts by saying this. God keeps His promises. And the man or woman who holds dear to the Word of God and seeks to apply it in their life can have victory over sin, which will result in ultimate eternal victory. And we can prove that left and right theologically. We understand that. It's what we have bargained for as we placed our lives in submission to Christ. The pious and the wicked are entirely different. The righteous and the unrighteous. And the point is this, and we see it in this passage, from beginning to end. From beginning to end. There's a difference in the process and the pattern of their life. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and just bow your heads. And I want you to think on some verses that I like to read through that I believe expound on this thought. You might even begin the process of meditation in this moment as I read these passages. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says this, All Scripture 
is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's a powerful, powerful thing, the word of God. Psalm 119, verse 9 says, How can a young man cleanse his way? Have victory over sin by taking heed according to your word, the word of God. Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word have I hid in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. Most of us here today have committed ourselves to the righteous way. But there are some with us who are still choosing to sit as scoffers. Maybe in your own mind you've reasoned that the counsel of men is more profitable to you than the counsel of God. You may think that tomorrow will be the day that you really get serious about changing that pattern. I have to tell you, though, you may not have it tomorrow. That day may not come. What you think is the happier, blessed way of living is really a very empty way of life if you were to be honest with yourself. Unfortunately, I believe you've been deceived This week, I know that you've heard the truth. And this morning, I simply invite you to make a decision. I don't believe there will ever be a better place or a better time in your life to settle this issue. If you are on the path of the ungodly, I beg with you this morning to stop in your tracks and to turn back. This campus can be a wonderful place for you to grow and to know God. Take advantage of it. Those of you who are serious about this promise, you know it's the foundation of your life. Be encouraged. I'm excited for you. Fall in love with truth and continue to not be a forgetful hearer. The simple truth is this. The victory over sin is won by the little decisions. You need to become so familiar with truth that the points of temptation are easily recognized. To resist, then, will help you avoid becoming enslaved later to a pattern of sin. The promise is this. The pursuit of God's truth will lead to victory over sin and a truly fruitful life. I want you to spend just one more moment and commit yourselves to the Lord. Pray about the things that we have talked about this morning and reason in your heart to commit yourself to them.